Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger. I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, an emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Our next guest is Miles Wakeham. He's an Australian who migrated to the USA in 1989 and has since become a multimillionaire, lives a 100% unconstrained life, no jobs, etc., yet never graduated high school, let alone went to college. He's a self-made business-focused technologist who was one of the early members of biotechnology corporation Amgen, now the largest biotech company in the world. He's made a fortune on Bitcoin since 2011 and owns a portfolio of rental properties. Miles was one of the few survivors of a massive auto accident in the outback of Australia in the 1990s, which forced him to question life, purpose, and direction. Since rebuilding himself from that, he knows how to handle and mitigate adversity, including taking advantage of medical tourism all over the world for major surgeries. He has honed those skills to live a life unconstrained. He spends 50% of his time in Arizona and 50% of his time roaming the world, seeking out new opportunities. He hosts the Unconstrained Podcast, in which he teaches the art of financial sustainability to his audience. In 2021, which is not that long ago, he and his wife bought a large compound in central Mexico with a bullfighting ring on it, and they're in the process of demolition and development to turn it into a luxury home and world-class recording studio. Just another one of his many adventures. Miles, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, I got to start off with, because some people, you know, I love my audience, but I'm speaking for me because I'm not as bright as my audience. What's an unconstrained life? Well, it's having your time that you're in control of. I think ultimately that's the one thing in life that we have a finite amount of. I've always said that, you know, you hear that common phrase that the guy dying on his deathbed is never really worried about how much money is in his bank account. And I've always tried to be the guy who doesn't want to live my life in regret. So... Being unconstrained means I've got control of my time and what I do with it, that's on me. But I'm not a guy who believes in bucket lists. So I think that you should just go out there and do what you want to do. And if anything is going to get in your way of doing that, you need to find a way to break it down. And when did this all occur for you that this needed to be the priority? Because I know you had an accident before that time. Were you thinking about living the unconstrained life or was this something that had a mind shift for you after the accident? I think it was well before that. I mean, I was one of these kids that was raised in a very musical family. Both my parents were concert pianists and they kind of made me become sensitive to a lot of the things that you probably as a musician that you just become associated with and a very young age. And I think that helped me understand that life isn't about a lot of the things that we think of as what I would call left brain experiences, pragmatic problem-solving, mathematics, science, those things are important, 
but they don't really tell a story about who the individual is. I think that's more of a right brain thing, if there's a lack of a better term. And I've had a life where my right and left brain have been battling each other since the day I was born. Yep. And they still, to this day, you know, one wants to drown the other one out. Sure. But I think with all of that said, the idea of freedom and the idea of needing to be able to be unconstrained, to be able to roam freely has been something that is really deep in me. I don't know if there was a moment as I could go back in time to say why that's the case. I just always felt that it was our life purpose to be able to go and live the richest possible life we could and just to be sensitive to everything that's going on around us so we can see opportunities for what they are as they they present, which they do all the time. Yeah. And do you think growing up in a musical family that was more about, I'm going to imagine that it was more about creativity than having a lot of money in the bank, but there may have been both. Do you think that that was an advantage for you in that environment of having the creativity? Because a lot of people don't grow up with either. They don't grow up with a lot of modeling around money. And we're also not always nurtured to go into our creativity because it doesn't pay the bills. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I mean, I always remember back in my very, very early days of starting a business that I was taught that a real entrepreneur, and this is the old school definition of that, a real creative entrepreneur, somebody, a founder, somebody with an idea for something, the most successful of them never worried about money. They never measured their successful venture financially. They measured it in whether or not they achieved what they wanted to achieve. And there are so many examples of that in history, but you could think about people like Steve Jobs of a guy who had a vision of what he wanted to do. And the money wasn't really important. It came along if he succeeded in the vision. And I wanted that. And I didn't want money to stop me from doing what I wanted to achieve, but I wanted it to be complementary. It wasn't until I got older, I had a family, I had a child, I got all of the trappings of Western life, like a mortgage and all of that sort of thing, that I started realizing that it was more an issue of survival. If I didn't have money, I couldn't transcend those things to get back to what my real calling was, which was more the entrepreneur's approach to things. And even to this day, I feel like I've come full circle because I don't have a job. I haven't had a job for 20-something years, and I don't want a job. (laughs) I want to go out there and do what I feel is a calling, whatever that might be, and I don't want money to stop me doing it. But at the same time, I kind of like it when it rewards you and says, hey, kid, you did the right thing. You know, that's kind of how I look at it. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Do you remember as a kid any financial memories, negative or positive, that reinforced go towards creativity or, oh, you need to have a backup plan or a safety net? I do. My first business was in around, let's say around the 1980 mark. Now, if any of your audience are old enough to remember that time, the Federal Reserve had a base interest rate of somewhere close to 20%. So the availability of capital had to have a damn good reason why you would get it, right? You had to have a solid guaranteed business plan to get anybody to want to invest in anything. And as a kid back in those days, I didn't know investors. I didn't have access to money and no bank was just saying, we'll loan to anybody. Back in those, no, that didn't happen back then. Did not happen. Everything was a startup and we bootstrapped everything off my own savings and money that I'd made from, you know, even back in those days, like paper route money. 
got converted into some little small business that then turned into something bigger and turned into something bigger. The money was always, again, the impediment to stop me doing what I wanted to do. I never sold out my dream to any other third party because I couldn't afford them. (laughs) So I had to do it myself. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It gives you a different perspective on money. You respect it because you earned every dime. Mm -hmm. And when you invested in something, it's your money. It's not somebody else's. You have 100% skin in the game. That lesson has helped me a lot because I realize responsibility that comes with that. And that if anybody is to befriend me and invest in my own dreams, it's a huge responsibility I take to do that because I'm doing it as if it was my money. Right. And I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, growing up with musical family, were you the poor kid, the middle class kid, upper middle class, the rich kid? Where did you fit in the community? I guess lower middle class would be right. Now, it's a very interesting question you have there because when I relate to it on how that looked, it tells a very interesting story. So I grew up, my father had a job working for the same company for all of his life. My mother didn't work. If she did, she had little bits of work here and there, but she was more involved in charities and things like that. And yet, even with that, my father paid his home off before he retired. And he he got to the point where I guess when I was about 12 years old and I had to go to high school, he chose to put me into a private high school and a private, what we would call a college there, not a university, but a private school. Very much like, imagine Harry Potter, you know, Hogwarts. (laughs) Not a bad school. (laughs) Not a bad school, right. But that was kind of where I went to school. So I went to school with all these rich kids you know, sons of doctors, sons of lawyers, politicians, architects. And I'm just a kid. You know, my dad works at a place that makes roofing materials. I mean, he's not rich. Right. But I had to act like I fit in. And that was insane. It was really hard. And I managed to skate through that whole experience because I was an accomplished musician at a very young age. I got into their music program. I didn't have to work at all in school. I could just bumble through it, you know. But by the time I got about three years into high school, I was looking at it going, there's nothing here teaching me anything. It's not like I didn't fit in. I didn't see any point to what they were trying to teach me. It was better for me to be at home and to learn how electronics worked or play around with CB radios and stuff like that. Maybe that's the nerd in me, but that is how it sort of leveraged into computers and eventually into business and eventually into life and technology. And so when you were in high school saying, this is a waste of time, did you have that bug already to be, I'm going to be a business-focused technologist? Like, it was there. And how did you know you had the skill set? Or did you just have the tenacity? Oh, it's just a stubborn kid. (laughs) I saw an opportunity. I remember one day I met a guy who was importing electronic parts into Australia, and he had a lot of books. And I realized that it's one thing to be able to get electronics, but you need to know how to use this stuff. And I need reference material. I don't know how I worked it out, but there was a company out of Taiwan that was selling low-priced electronic reference books that could be brought into Australia duty-free. There was no customs because there were books. And I wrote a letter to this company in Taiwan, this kid, I was maybe 14 years old. And I said, I want to buy a whole stack of your books. Send me a price list. And they did. And back in those days, it took weeks to get a letter back. 
but I got this priceless and I'm like, okay, 10 of those and 20 of those. And, and so I saved up my money and I, back in those days, it was a telegraphic transfer you had to use. Right. <laughs> so I sent this letter with this order and this money over to them. And next thing you know, a few weeks later, a big box comes in the mail full of these books. And next thing I was in business selling these books. Wow. And I made a killing on it. And I was 14. And there was in the garage in a little corner, I made a makeshift office and that's how I started. And it wasn't that I was trying to make money. I was trying to get money to enable me to do something with it that I then leveraged into a business. And I've been doing that ever since. (laughs) That's awesome. Now, when you decided that school was not for you, were your parents disappointed? Did they just say, yep, that's cool. Like, what was that conversation like when you had that realization? It was a yet that's cool moment, which I couldn't believe that. I said to my father, this is insane. I've discovered this thing called a computer. It was like 1977. The first ones ever came out and I got one because I saved up this money. And I said, I want this to be what I do. And there is a window of opportunity that's very, very slim right now for me to master this machine because nobody, there were no universities teaching this stuff and This was something I knew was going to be in big demand. And I don't know if I just pitched it the right way, but he bought on it. He said, okay, kid, fine, buy me. I'll save a ton of money, not having to send you to the private school. Go and do it. But, you know, you fall down, you pull yourself up. I'm not digging you out. And I said, okay. In Australia, that's the norm. I come from a country where little insects on the ground will kill you. And snakes are in every corner and... (laughs) Don't go swimming in the ocean because the shark will eat you. I mean, yeah, this is how we're raised. So it's always on us. So if I go to somebody and I ask for permission to do something, it's with the complete understanding that good or bad, I own it. Yeah. And I think that that was kind of the key that I had to sell Kim on, that I'm going to own my mistake or I'm going to own my success. And now it's on me. And with his blessing, he let me do it. That's awesome. A lot of parents here in the U.S. would be having a coronary and would be thinking this was a reflection of them and it would be all about the parent, not even about the kid. So yeah, that's just incredible that your dad saw this or he took the bait and let you go your own way. Now, you started selling the books. You started doing the computers. Did you have any financial setbacks? Did you have any businesses that, oh man, it didn't go quite the way you thought? Well, there was always that. I mean, cash flow was king. And that's the one thing I learned early on running a business. When I first actually established a business, like rented offices, ended up having six people working for me. We were writing software for all these big organizations. And I was a kid. Right. But they couldn't see the kid. All they saw was an ad in the yellow pages. And, you know, so the attorney general's department who needed some software written would call this number up in the yellow pages and we'd answer it. And they didn't know who they were dealing with until I rocked up into their conference room and said, hi, I'm the guy. And they're like, oh my God, what have we done? You know, it's a kid. I'm like, will you tell me any other kid out there who's done what I've done? And I said, if you have any issue with that, find somebody else. And they said, now he's right. Yeah. There weren't anybody else. Supply and demand. So I sat down there and I did a damn good job and I wrote the software they wanted. And then they said, We're going to keep this kid around and we just keep feeding him work. But the problem is everybody else did it too. I was working for a 
submarine manufacturer who wrote their invoicing software for a $5 billion, billion with a B, contract to the Royal Australian Navy out of a software I wrote on a Macintosh Wow! that ran that. I was writing, I had a partner, he was a failed biologist who decided he wanted to become a software developer. We ended up writing the cryogenic freezer storage systems for the universities that I probably would have gone to if I stayed in school. <laughs> and then here's the kid who didn't even finish high school. I wrote your freezer storage system, dude. I mean, <laughs> how much irony is that? <laughs> but this was life in the 80s. I mean, I came to the US in 89, so I don't know what it was like 10 years prior, but in Australia, it was the Wild West. Yeah, You created the industry you were in and you built it and it didn't matter what your credentials were. It's what you could do. Right. And I love that. But that pragmatic idealism is something that it strips away anybody telling somebody, I can't make it here because no, they won't give me opportunity. It's like, I'm sorry, you make your own opportunity, right? Right. See something, go for it. Don't worry about how old you are, what your gender is, what your race is, none of that. Just do it, right? Yeah. Because they don't know who the hell you are on the other side of a web page. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, how was it? I would imagine some of the people working for you were older than you. Oh, way older. Way older. <laughs> so how was that, you know, giving direction to potential people that could be the age of mom and dad? I don't give direction. What I do is I surround myself with people better than me so that I raise up. And I empower them to do what they need to do. I give them a mission. I give them a set of measurement success factors. Like if you know you're on the right path, if you hit these points, go. It's not up to me to tell them how to do that. That would be disrespectful for them. Mm -hmm. But if I empower them, guess what? They don't work for me. They work for themselves. Right. And the second that I realized that, I realized that the key to motivating somebody is to make sure they understand and they think that they're doing it for them. That's when I got extreme results. Yeah. Did you have to ever let anybody go? Oh, many times. Yeah, many times. But it was always something where I didn't really have to explain myself. I could just say, you know, you screwed up. You know, you did it. You did it here. And then two weeks later, you did it again. And I ain't paying for this. So out of here. Yeah. I, I didn't ever feel I was being disrespectful or nasty to anybody, but I made them understand that they have to own their own mistakes. And I'm more than happy to give somebody the flexibility to fall down because I've done it so many times. Right. But it's what you do with yourself. You don't want to continue to fall down and you don't want to do it where somebody else is picking up the price all the time. Right. That gets expensive. <laughs> Big time. Now, you had this accident in the outback of Australia and it forced you to think about purpose and direction and all these things. Can you share a little bit about that? you know, initially emerging from and realizing, hey, I just survived this crazy thing that a lot of people didn't. And then what was that like in that period after? Well, leading up to that was interesting. At the age of 25, I had come to the United States and I ended up getting married. And I lived here for six years, five, six years, something like that. And then I had all of these hopes and dreams of things that I was doing in the States and they were going extremely well. And then all of a sudden, I got a phone call that my mother had a car accident in Australia and I had to return back. And with that, I had to take my wife at the time back to Australia and we had to try to create a life there while I was looking after my mother. 
And that didn't go so well. My wife ended up, we got divorced, she left, and I found myself in a pretty depressing, dark place. The reason why I ended up in the outback was some friends of mine sort of scooped me up over a holiday season one year and said, look, we don't want you not having people around you over New Year's or whatever. Come with us. We'll go to the Gold Coast and we'll go to the beach or something. And we drove there across the outback. And on the way back, that's when we had this massive car accident. And I remember at the time, I guess time goes through one of these like still motion effects leading up to something like that. Like you see the 30 frames a second of video of everything there. I remember during that time, I had this thought that, okay, I'm done. You know, it wasn't the car accident. It was the depression that led up to being in that situation where I had the car accident. It was like, if God wants to take me right now, fine, I'll accept it. Then I woke up. I had this guy with the big jaws of life cutting me out of the car. I was in the back seat of the car. My buddy's girlfriend was in the front passenger seat and she was lying on top of me. Wow. Which was weird. We were, it was totally crushed. It was a major thing. And I remember when the guy was cutting me out of the car, one of these paramedic kind of guys with the jaws of life. And I kept saying to him and what I could muster, I said, don't worry about me, get her. You know, she's on, you know, get her. And he just kept ignoring me all the time. I couldn't believe it. Like, what are you ignoring me? Get her, right? I didn't realize she was dead. Mm-hmm. So when you wake up with a dead body on top of you like that, you come face to face with, oh dear. <laughs> yeah. Then they put you out. And at that point, I remember when I did wake up, I did this sort of mental check. I said, okay, fingers. Do they work? Yeah, check. Okay, toes, can I wiggle them? Yeah, check. Okay, I'm good. I can deal with this. And that's when they pulled me out. I didn't realize the level of extent of injuries I had at the time, but I knew that if I could use my fingers and I could feel my feet, that I had a core that would survive this as it happened. That was what happened. But coming out of that, I then dealt with all of these issues that were outside of me, like the government healthcare system, which kind of let me down, and the insurance companies, which were horrible to deal with. And years of this went on afterwards while I was still disabled, could barely walk. You know, I'd lost most of the sort of left side of my upper body was destroyed. And it was just this constant thing. But I always said, I can get through this, you know? And I think I learned many, many decades later that whenever I found myself in an adversarial position, like the 2008 global financial crisis, for example. And I found myself in a very, very precarious state where I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go bankrupt. I'm going to lose it all. I knew if I could get through that, I can get through anything. Yeah. I thought at that age, I was 32 when that happened, I thought that I knew it all. I'd been around the world. I'd had businesses. I'd done work for these big companies. I'd been around the block. I knew what was going on. I was the man. Yeah. I didn't know squat until I was being pulled out of a wreckage with a dead body on me. That's when I realized, and it's funny these days when I try to talk to people about similar experiences, the people I end up talking to are like veterans, you know, guys who have been in the front line being shot at by the enemy in Iraq or whatever. And I mean, these are the guys with PTSD or coming back from war that I can understand, right? Yeah. But a funny thing is, I somehow transcended that experience. I don't have fear of high-speed cars. In fact, I'm one of the biggest Formula One motor racing fans there is. I mean, it's like, I love this stuff. It's like an adrenaline rush. Yeah. How did that not affect me mentally? I don't know. But if I have the blessing that it didn't, 
I can go out to veterans and I can help them understand that that bomb that their buddy was killed with or just about took their life, it does not define them, right? Right. Their reaction. Okay, this is something I tell my daughter all the time, and I think it's so true. Everyone gets in a bad situation. It's how you react that matters. Right. It's the only thing you can control. You can't control all the things that are going on about you in the world, but the only thing you can control is how you react to it. And if you have a positive outlook and you can see beyond these things and react accordingly, that is wealth right there. So let me ask you this. You got all this information. You realized you could persevere. You could get through anything. What was the impetus for, I want to share this information? You've got a podcast now talking about living an unconstrained life. You're out there writing books. You're trying to get people maybe not to have the same vision, but to at least question what their vision is or how they want to show up in life. Why is that so important to you? I came from a place and a time which was extremely atypical to where I ended up in the United States. And the first realization of that was when I got through the immigration process here and I eventually got my right to work like a green card. And my first job was at this crappy audio rental place in Southern California. (laughs) But it was nice guys, you know, they were really good people. And I remember I was having lunch with this guy who was, he was the only guy in the company, about 50 people working there. He was the only guy in the company that wore a shirt and tie to work every day. Not a very Californian thing at all. No. And his name was Julian. And I remember we'd sit down and for some reason, he's kind of befriended me because I was kind of an oddball there too. And we'd have lunch and I'd say, you know, Julian explained to me his life. He said, I went to university. I got a degree. I ended up working for, I think it was like Lockheed Martin or one of these big defense contractors. I was an expert in quality control on aircraft navigation systems or something like that. And he thought he'd made it, right? He thought this was his thing. And then they shut down all the defense contracts. I think around about the Clinton era, there was a lot of budgetary cutbacks in the military and he ended up on the street and he had to take the only job he could take. And I'd sit down and say to him, so why are you here, Julian? Why did you come here? And he goes, healthcare. I've got a family that needs medical care and my daughter I don't remember what ailment she had, but she had an ailment that needed hospitalization and needed medical care. And I have to take this job because I've got to look after my family's health. I need to be able to take her to the hospital. And I'd come from a country where medicine was free. Right. It was just with abandon, you could get it, well, in most cases. And I saw that and I said, that's not right. (laughs) You shouldn't have to sell your life out because of this thing that you had no control over that who's here to help you, Julian? And he's like, nobody. It's all on me. I'm like, I know what all on me looks like, but that ain't it. (laughs) Right. That's not fair. But anyway, fair, I guess, doesn't really matter anymore. Not really. I think at that point, I started realizing that everybody else that I started talking to and were having lunch with, they had the same story. They went to school. They then went to college. They took on enormous amount of student loan debt. They came out of college. None of them worked for what they studied for in university. None of them. Yeah. I got people who they learned, they studied psychology. Oh, yeah, I'm an event planner. What? (laughs) The only people who actually did were people that were in hardline professions like doctors, lawyers, accountants, architects, where their tertiary skills 
were part of what they were doing. But for 70% of the people, nah, it wasn't like that. But they're carrying around 100 grand debt. I thought, okay. And then they'd go and they'd get this mortgage. They'd go get a house. They'd raise a family and they'd want to buy a house. And some banker was telling them, you deserve a house. You deserve the next 30 years of your life being in debt to me. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And I'm like, well, does anybody know what the literal French translation of the term mortgage is? It's death contract. That's what it translates to. <laughs> wow. Mort is death. <laughs> and why is nobody seeing this set up? What's going on here? You know, the 18-year-old kid at the kitchen table with the parents is being told to sign the student loan contract, and that kid can't go into the bar and get a beer. He's not old enough yet, and yet he's signing the 100 grand of debt away. I'm like, that ain't right. And then now you've got people out there signing their life away for the house that they probably can't afford because somebody told them, well, the interest rates are low enough that you can probably afford the payment. Yeah, but the next 30 years of your life, you've given to somebody else. Your freedom is gone. Your ability to go and say, I feel like I'm going to move to Thailand tomorrow. No, no, you've got a house, right? Yeah. You're going to sell the house or stick a tenant in there who's going to wreck it for you or whatever, but you've got this obligation. And by the way, you've got probably got a family and you've got a kid. And then it's Julian. <laughs> You're having to do all these things you don't want to do with your one and only life because of your responsibilities, most of which you took them willingly on the proviso that it's all about going to the moon and Lambos, and that's how we're going to live our life. And yet we're in debt up to our eyeballs and we're never going to be able to pay it off. And then at the end of that, you're 65 years old and you tell me, oh, Miles, I can't retire. It's like, well, duh. <laughs> right. Of course you can't retire. Look at what you did. You screwed up. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I'm Doctor Who. I can roll back time. No, you screwed up. Own it. And so with all of that said, I said to people, none of this stuff makes sense. None of it. This social mantra that we tell ourselves is being a good citizen, a good tax-paying citizen, it's not serving us. And when I look at my own story, as atypical and contrarian as that is, As the immigrant, we came here with nothing and made millions of dollars. I look at this and go, well, they want to talk to me about how I did it, but it's not about how I did it. It's the philosophical embracement of a failed mantra and the fact that I did it because I avoided that. Right. And then all of a sudden, now I've got a story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I definitely think many people are educated to be sheep. And to buy into the story and that if we can dismantle that mindset, there's a whole world of possibility out there for sure. I will say, though, I'm looking at the world through my rose-colored glasses, like from where I look. And I have to be respectful of the fact that I know so many of my friends are extremely successful doctors and lawyers and, and they're wonderful people and they're incredibly bright, smart, and they're great at doing what they do. And I love hanging around with them. And they would refute everything I'm telling you. Right. The problem is if you look at them as a percentage of the working population, they're one or 2%. Right. The other 98% would not agree with them. And that's the people who tend to listen to my words. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Miles, we are at the Fast Five. So we are going to shift energy real quick. The Fast Five is brought to you by Cube Money, which is a cash envelope system made easy. Real-time financial awareness without the hassle of tracking expenses and carrying cash. So, Miles, I'm going to throw some questions out to you. 
And let's see where we go. What's the best medical tourism trip you ever took? Guadalajara, Mexico. I had a complete shoulder replacement done. I was quoted 160 grand to get it done in UCLA, in California. It cost me nine grand out the door. Best ever job I've ever had in my life. (laughs) And you got to have some fun and some tacos. (laughs) Gotta love them tacos, man. (laughs) Gotta love the tacos. Besides possibly taxes, what's the one thing you really don't like to spend money on? Wasting time. Anything that just is a distraction away from what I'm trying to do in my life, I feel is a wasted cause of investment in money or time. So I have to look at each situation different because they're all unique. But those are the things I'll avoid. What emotion do you experience most? I guess this is my musical sensitivity. I am very sensitive to other people's situations, whether it be good or bad. Yeah. Music. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the creative arts and the importance they play in the world. I think they're not given enough value. With all the success that you've had, do you still pay attention to your budget? Oh, absolutely. Every day I pull down my banking numbers in my QuickBooks and I update my spreadsheets every single day. That is awesome. People listen, do your budgets, do your budgets. What's one financial habit of yours you would like to change? I have a problem that I get on a project with a purpose, a mission, whatever I'm building, and I forget about the money. And that ends up biting me in the butt when I get to the finishing line. I just don't quite have enough to get over it. I need to be a little more realistic. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. (laughs) So we are at our sweet spot, our M&M moment. And I'm wondering if you have a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom you could give our listeners that's worked for you. I do. When you come from Australia, we all live on the coast, at least I did. You become very good as somebody who likes to go and swim and the beach. It's in your blood. And one of the things that as a teenager I did was I learned how to surf. And it was the best lesson in life I ever learned. And the way it worked was that I would go out into the ocean with all my mates with these surfboards and we'd pretend that we knew what we were doing and we didn't. And we'd constantly get beaten up by these massive waves and the surfboard hits you in the back of the head and you do this day after day after day and you wonder what is going on? Why am I doing this? Why is it that some people out there seem to be able to ride any wave without any issue and I can't do it? But you persevere. And I kept going out there. One day I worked it out and I became a reasonable surfer. What I worked out was that the universe has this nature of waves, everything in balance ups and downs, north and south pole. If we didn't have the axis of the planet, we couldn't spin and we would be destroyed. Everything has to be in balance. And waves are no different. Waves have an incline and they crash and then they go away. I looked at that and I realized that the only way that you ever catch a wave as a surfer is you have to be ahead of it. You have to be paddling in front of it and you have to be picked up by it. When I realized that, I started understanding how many other parts of the world that applies to. And I realized that the biggest part of the world that applies to is money. If you are somebody who studies charts, you see things going up and down. You see the waves. And the old buy low, sell high metaphor is very simple. But when you bring it back to a universal truth, and that is if you're at the bottom of a wave and you see it inclining and you position yourself to take the opportunity of that, The wave itself and its own energy will do all the work and you don't have to do a thing. When I learned that, 
I made a million dollars instantly because I had to understand there are always waves, but it's where you position yourself and get picked up by them that determines the ride. And it's the ride that you want. Case in point, I bought some real estate in Australia many years ago because I had heard that was in a country town that was going to be connected to the city because the government were going to drill through a mountain and put a tunnel there. So I bought those properties in the country town before the tunnel was there. I picked my wave. Right. The tunnel was built. I sold those properties five years later for three times what I bought them for, all because of timing. But it's not to just say buy low, sell high. Yeah. It's to not pay proper attention to what's really going on. Everything is in balance in this universe. And when you pick the point where you enter something and you know the point where you exit it, that's when you make money. And that's when you do really, really well for yourself. And at the end of the day, life's about enjoying the ride. Totally. (laughs) It's totally about totally enjoying the ride. (laughs) Well, Miles, this has been such a great conversation. You know, one of the things that I'm aware of is you didn't do it the typical way. Most kids can't go to their parents and say, I'm going to stop the school thing. But even along the way, you had support, but you also, all along the way, it really sounds like you were willing to take responsibility and be accountable for your successes or your failures and not putting that on anyone else. And even with the accident, taking away the life lessons versus the trauma and the PTSD from that, but for whatever reason, being able to be resilient and moving beyond it. So I really appreciate that you're out there sharing the message because I do agree that a lot of people out there don't know any better. They're just following the mantra that was shared with them, which was get a job, buy a house, have some kids, stay in debt, repeat the cycle. And going out there and challenging people that there might be another mindset and there might be another way is a great service to all the folks out there that want something different. So where can people find you online and social media? Where can people find your podcast? You've got a book coming out. Beunconstrained.com. I created this website and the feeder to all of that. If anyone wants to find out about me, my blabbering on my podcast and all of that, yeah, beunconstrained.com. They can read my articles there. They can subscribe to the podcast. They can read it all. They can consume it all. And I'm a big open source kind of guy. I like to give information out for free because if it helps somebody else, I've done my job. Awesome. Well, we will definitely send everybody there. Miles, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you got to go tear down a bull ring and (laughs) get your project underway, but thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it, Bob. It's an honor to be on this show. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. Blah, blah, blah.